0: Hello, this is part two of episode eight of this podcast. It covers the case of the UK serial killer, Dennis Nielsen. In part one of this episode, I concentrated on Dennis Nielsen's background, his family life, his years growing up, and also his later years in the army, the police force, and lastly, the job centre. I also looked a little bit at some of his known relationships, including how he got on with his family and his closeness and apparent fondness that he had had towards his maternal grandfather. I also looked a little into his relationship with his seemingly only long-term partner, who was called David. I'm now going to look at Dennis Nielsen's victims and what is known about them and how they died. Also, I will look at his known victims that would amazingly survive his murderous attacks and manage to get out alive. They also were able to provide valuable insight during the police investigation and also at the subsequent court case. Dennis Nielsen was born on the 23rd of November of 1945 in Scotland. He lived most of his early life until he joined the army in Scotland. He spent many years abroad, namely in Germany, Aden, Norway and Cyprus afterwards. He also spent some of his army life mainly when he was training in England. In the army, Dennis would learn how to become a chef and would often cook for quite a large number of soldiers as well as a few officers. Dennis Nielsen got a dog as a pet when he moved to London. It was a Mongol dog which he called Bleep. Dennis Nielsen would go on to settle in London after he completed his his army years. It is not known if he ever went back to Scotland at all afterwards. It was while he was living in London that he would go on to either murder or attempt to murder many young men as well as some boys. It is known that between 1978 and 1983, Dennis Nielsen killed a minimum of at least 12 men and boys. He is also suspected of trying to kill at least seven others. When he was finally arrested, he would initially admit to killing 15 people. However, there was not enough evidence to charge him with all 15 murders. It is thought that most of his victims were homeless, and although some were homosexual men, it is thought that some were not. He would usually pick up his victims from pubs or sometimes on public transport, and he would usually invite the person back to his flat for a drink or for for some food or for some shelter which must have been very tempting, especially if especially if you are living rough on the streets. Dennis Nielsen would later admit that often the victims were given some food and alcohol. They would either then be strangled to death, or at least until they were unconscious. He would use a ligature, often a tie. If the victim managed to survive the strangulation, he would most likely be drowned in the bath by Dennis Nielsen. Dennis would go on to say that after he had finished his victims off he would often bathe them and dress them again, sometimes just in their underwear. He would keep a body in his flat usually for a couple of weeks. However, sometimes it would be a lot longer than two weeks. Dennis Nielsen would eventually dismember bodies at some point. Whilst he lived at the flat at Cricklewood, which was 195 Melrose Avenue, All of his victims would either be burned on a bonfire in the garden that Dennis had exclusive access to or, once dismembered, thrown away in rubbish bags throughout the local area. While living at 195 Manrose Avenue and after his relationship with David had already ended some time before, Dennis lured his first victim back to his flat. The victim was called Stephen Holmes and he was only 14 years old at the time of his murder. This murder took place on the 30th of December 1978. The pair had met earlier at the Cricklewood Arms which was a local pub. Stephen had tried to buy some alcohol that day, but had been refused due to being underage. Dennis had been drinking all day at his flat and had decided to go out and pick somebody up. Dennis said to the police when he was interviewed many years later that he thought Stephen Holmes was at least 17 years old. Dennis Nielsen had approached the young boy and invited him back to his flat for a drink, which unfortunately he agreed to do. It is claimed that the pair then drank heavily and eventually fell asleep. It was alleged by Dennis later on that Stephen was still alive the next morning. Dennis would claim that he woke up to find that Stephen was still asleep and that he then became worried about the boy waking up and just leaving him. Dennis then decided that the boy was going to stay with him over the new year whether he wanted to or not. Dennis strangled Stephen with a necktie until he was unconscious then he drowned him in a bucket of water. Dennis admitted he then masturbated over the body. He would then move the body under the floorboards. It has been claimed that the young boy's body was kept under the floorboards for about eight months. On the 11th of August of 1979, Dennis Nielsen would take the body out to his garden and burn it on a makeshift bonfire. Dennis has been quoted as saying later that he had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. His next victim was a man named Andrew Ho, who was originally from Hong Kong. The pair had met in a pub and arranged to go back to Dennis Nielsen's flat. This was on the 11th of October of 1979. Afterwards, Dennis then had apparently tried to strangle Andrew, but luckily Andrew managed to escape. He then reported the incident to the police, but ultimately he decided that he did not want to press any charges. Dennis Nielsen targeted another man on the 3rd of December of 1979. This victim was a Canadian man called Kenneth Hockenden. He had been on a tour of England as well as visiting relatives. They met in a West End pub Dennis Nielsen initially offered to show Kenneth some of the sights and local landmarks, which the tourists gladly accepted. The men went back to Dennis Nielsen's flat after they had finished sightseeing to have a meal and some drinks. They apparently stopped off at a local off-licence to buy some alcohol. Dennis would later say that he strangled Kenneth with the cord of his headphones as the young man was listening to music. The next day, Dennis took photos of Kenneth Hockington's body in various pornographic poses. He later lay with the body of the young man over him while he watched TV for many hours. This was according to testimony from Dennis Nielsen himself later on when he was arrested. Dennis then wrapped the body in plastic bags and put it under the floorboards. Dennis admitted to taking the body out from its hiding place on several occasions over the next few weeks and he had put it in the armchair next to the chair that he himself was sitting in. Dennis Nielsen's next victim was a boy called Martin Duffy. Martin was only 16 years old at the time of his death, which was the 17th of May of 1980. Martin was a student who lived in Birkenhead, Merseyside in England. He had hitchhiked to London. His parents were unaware that he had even gone to London, He had left Birkenhead on the 13th of May of 1980 and had met Dennis on the 17th of May. Martin had slept on the streets for the previous few days and he had slept near Euston Railway Station. Dennis met him outside the station on the 17th of May. Dennis had just arrived back from a union meeting which had taken place in Stockport, which is in Greater Manchester. Dennis would later say that when he first saw Martin, he could tell that the boy was hungry and exhausted. Martin keenly accepted the offer of a meal and a bed for the night. That was offered by Dennis Nelson. Once the boy was asleep, Dennis used a ligature to strangle Martin until he was unconscious. Then he drowned the boy in the kitchen sink. Dennis later said that he took a bath with the body afterwards. He sat the body in a kitchen chair afterwards. Dennis would later kiss, caress and compliment the body, masturbating at the same time. Martin Duffy's body was kept in a cupboard until later being placed under the floorboards. After killing Martin Duffy, the rate of killing increased significantly. Dennis would go on to kill another five victims and attempt to kill a sixth victim by the end of the same year, which was 1980. Out of all of these victims, only one was ever formally identified. The known victim was called William Sutherland. who was 26 years old at the time of his murder. The other victims, Dennis, was quite vague about the actual details of them, but he remembered graphically how each one had died. At one time during this spell, there were too many bodies under the floorboards and they were attracting many insects and many had maggots on them as well. Dennis thought that by putting insecticide over the area and using deodorant and air fresheners twice a day that the problem would just go away but the odour was horrendous and had to be dealt with before anyone else noticed it. At the end of 1980, he dissected all of the bodies that were under the floorboards. One victim had been there for nearly a year. He burned the bodies on a bonfire constructed in his garden. He would put an old car tyre on the bonfire to try and disguise the smell of it. The fire would eventually reduce the bones down to only cinders, which is why some of the victims still have remained unidentified to this day. In early January of 1981, Dennis Nielsen met a man whom he would later describe to the police as being About 18 years old, with blue eyes and a Scottish accent, he claimed to have met the young man at the Golden Lion pub in Soho. He had then lured him back to Melrose Avenue with the promise of more alcohol. Once again, as Dennis Nielsen had done so on so many other occasions, he had a few drinks with the man and then he strangled him with a tie. Afterwards, he placed the body under the floorboards, just as he had done so with many victims before. He would dissect this poor victim and another victim that he had murdered one month earlier, also unidentified. By April of 1981, as well as the two victims discussed, two more victims were killed in the flat. Dennis described one as being an English skinhead whom he had apparently met in Leicester Square. The other one he described as Belfast Boy, who had been in his early 20s. Dennis Nielsen would sometimes describe to the police these meetings as, quote, End of the day, end of the drink, end of a person. Floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. Unquote. According to Dennis Nielsen's recollection, the final victim to be killed at the flat at Melrose Avenue was a 23 year old man called Malcolm Barlow. Dennis had apparently discovered Malcolm slumped outside the flat on the 17th of September of 1981. When Dennis asked him if he was okay, Malcolm replied that he had taken medication for his epilepsy, but it had caused his legs to weaken. Dennis said that he had helped Malcolm into the flat and phoned for an ambulance. Malcolm Barlow was released from hospital the following day. Unfortunately, Malcolm decided to go back to Dennis Nielsen's flat at Melrose Avenue and thank him for helping him. Dennis invited him in and they had a meal together and a drink of rum and coke. Malcolm then fell asleep on the sofa. Dennis then manually strangled Malcolm as he slept. He then stored the body under the kitchen sink. So after being helped the day before and having spent time recovering in hospital Malcolm had done the decent thing by showing appreciation to the stranger who had helped him the day before but this time for some reason he ended up dead. In mid-1981, Dennis Nielsen had to move out of the flat at Marrows Avenue because the landlord wanted to renovate the building. Dennis was reluctant to go at first, but was then offered £1,000 compensation. He then moved into the attic flat at Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill District of North London. This was on the 5th of October of 1981. Prior to leaving Marrows Avenue, Dennis had the small matter of five victims' bodies that he needed to get rid of. He burned them on his third and final bonfire, once again in the garden that he had exclusive access to. Once again, he put an old car tire on the fire to hopefully disguise the smell should anyone become suspicious. Things would become a lot more difficult for Dennis Nielsen once he had moved into the attic flat at Cranley Gardens. He had no access to any garden at all and because he was in the attic he also had no floorboards as such to place any future bodies. Dennis Nielsen must have had some control over his murderous actions because despite still luring people back to his flat he would not harm them in any way at least for the first couple of months of moving to the attic flat. This did, not, did change, however, when he tried to kill a 19-year-old man called Paul Nobbs on the 23rd of November of 1981. He, however, began to strangle him, but then suddenly stopped. Dennis would next meet a 23-year-old man called John Howlett at a pub near Leicester Square. John was invited back to Dennis Nielsen's flat for a drink. They watched a film together and then John fell asleep. Dennis would say later to the police that he had tried to wake the other man up but could not do so. John would put up a struggle, but Dennis managed to strangle John Howlett until he was unconscious. He had used a strap this time and not a tie. It was seem that this murder took it out of Dennis physically because of the fact that the man had put up such a fight. Dennis was left shaking. Dennis would confide that on three separate occasions John Howlett regained consciousness from the attack, so Dennis decided to drown him instead. In May of 1982, Dennis Nielsen would attempt to murder a young man called Carl Stotter. He was 21 years old and had already come out to everyone as gay. Carl had been drinking one evening in the Black Cap pub in Camden with Dennis, when Dennis Nielsen started a conversation with him. Carl Stotter was upset because he had just come out of a relationship and was feeling depressed about it all. Dennis decided to supply him with plenty of alcohol before inviting him back to his attic flat at Cranley Gardens. Dennis provided a sleeping bag for Carl to use for the night. He had also warned Carl about the zip in the sleeping bag because, as he said, it would sometimes get stuck. He was probably already planning on attacking him at this point. Carl Stotter would tell the court and the police that he had woken up to find Dennis Nielsen trying to strangle him. He said that while he struggled, he was shouted at by Dennis to stay still. Initially, Carl had told investigators that he had thought at first that Dennis was actually trying to help him and that he had actually got stuck with the dodgy zip on the sleeping bag. Carl Stotter, in fact, did become unconscious after a while. Dennis had decided to drown him instead. Perhaps it had been too much trying to strangle him. Carl Stotter was immersed in some water. Somehow he had managed to keep his head above water long enough to survive this vicious attack. Dennis thought that he had actually killed the young man and placed him on an armchair. Dennis still had his dog Bleep at this point. Bleep started to lick Carl's face for a while, which made Dennis realise that the man may not actually be dead after all. For some reason, Dennis Nielsen, who had only moments earlier, tried very hard to kill Carl's daughter was now attempting to remedy matters by covering the victim in blankets and helping him to the bed so that he could lie down. Carl was unaware of all of this at the time because he was coming in and out of unconsciousness at the time. This information was given to the police when Dennis was eventually arrested some time later. When Carl Stotter regained consciousness, Dennis explained to him that he had actually got caught up with the zip on the sleeping bug after all, and that he had almost died, but that... Dennis had luckily enough been able to save him. Once Carl's daughter had recovered enough, he tried to question Dennis on some of the memories that he had of him being strangled and nearly drowning by Dennis Nielsen's hands. Dennis denied everything and kept the story that Carl had, in fact, got caught up in the sleeping bag. Eventually, Dennis escorted the young man to the local railway station and said goodbye. It has been reported that Carl Stotter knew something was not quite right about what he was told and and what he actually remembered about the attack. Carl decided not to go to the police about his concerns, which is not that surprising really. In the 80s, gay people did not always get treated very well by the authorities. He was also still confused by what had actually happened and decided to just leave it at that. In either September or October of 1982, Dennis Nielsen came across another potential victim called Graham Allen, who was 27 years old at the time. They met at Shaftesbury Avenue. Unfortunately, Graham agreed to go back to Dennis Nielsen's flat for a meal and some drinks. Dennis apparently cooked a meal of omelette. He would then kill the poor man while he was actually still eating the omelette, prepared for him by his soon-to-be killer. (laughs) On the 26th of January of 1983 Dennis Nielsen would kill his final victim. He was a young man of 20 years old called Stephen Sinclair. Stephen had last been seen by some of his friends in Dennis Nielsen's company although they did not actually know him. The pair were heading towards a tube station at the time. Dennis Nielsen has since said that once he got Stephen back to his flat it wasn't very long before the young man had fallen asleep due to the fact that he had drank a lot of alcohol that day as well as having taken drugs earlier in the day. Dennis went up to Stephen and apparently knelt before him and said to himself, quote, Oh Stephen, here I go again, unquote. He then strangled the poor man. He used a tie and a rope to finish the young man off. The body was then bathed and placed on the bed. Dennis was naked as well and spent time looking at the body. He also kissed the dead body and said goodbye to it before falling asleep. Because Dennis Nielsen had moved to this new property that did not have any access to a garden and the fact that he was also living in the attic flat, he had very limited options available to him in relation to disposing of the bodies that had accumulated in his cupboards and in his wardrobes. One of the options that was available to the murderer was to dissect the bodies and remove the internal organs. Once removed, he then decided to flush the organs and some of the smaller bones down the toilet. He would also boil the head's hands and also the feet to remove any flesh from them to make it easier to dispose of. As you can imagine, it did not take long before the drains became blocked at the property, which would go... On to affect all of the tenants living there. On the 4th of February of 1983 Dennis Nielsen wrote to the letting agents assigned to the flat at Cranny Gardens and complained that the drains were blocked and that it was intolerable for not only himself but also for the other tenants as well. The landlord did arrange for a local tradesman to take a look. The man was at the time working for a company called Dino Rod The plumber that was assigned to the job of sorting out the problems with the drains at Cranley Gardens was called Michael. He went to the property on the 8th of February of 1983, by which, at this point of time, all of the tenants were having problems flushing their toilets, and was therefore extremely keen for the matter to be resolved. The plumber opened the drain cover, which was located at the side of the building. The building itself used to be a house, but had in recent years been converted into a number of self-contained flats. Michael discovered that the drain appeared to be packed with flesh-like substances, as well as many small bones. He immediately reported back to his supervisor, who was called Gary, It was getting late in the day, so it was agreed that both Michael and Gary would come back to the property in the morning to take a closer look at the drains. Dennis Nielsen and another tenant named Jim spoke to the plumber before he left for the day. Michael told the men that the substance that he had discovered appeared to be very similar to human flesh. Dennis Nielsen, however, replied that, quote... It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky fried chicken, unquote. The next morning, as previously arranged, the two men from Dino Rod returned to 23 Cranley Gardens. When they took a look at the drain, it had been cleared, which made the men even more suspicious. However, they did manage to find a few small pieces of bone and some scraps of flesh in a pipe leading from the drain that was linked to the attic flat of the building. It was at this point that the police were called because the men were now convinced that what they had discovered was the remains of a human being. Once the police arrived, they collected all the evidence and then sent it on to a local mortuary so that it could be analysed by pathologist Professor David Bowen He confirmed that the remains were indeed human and that one particular piece of flesh had evidence of a ligature mark. It was decided by the detective leading the new now murder investigation that the police would wait outside the property until Dennis Nielsen arrived home from work. He still worked at a local job centre and amazingly still went to work that day despite knowing that at any time the truth was going to come out. Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay, along with two police officers, waited for Dennis Nielsen to return home. Chief Inspector Jay introduced himself to Dennis Nielsen and also to his two colleagues. He explained to Nielsen that he had come to speak to him about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police would be interested in this. Chief Inspector Jay asked to be let into the flat so that they could all discuss the matter further. Once the officers were in the flat, they immediately noticed the horrible smell, which appeared to be of rotting flesh. Dennis Nielsen once again asked why they would be interested in the drains, at which point he was told that the blockage had in actual fact been caused by human flesh and bones. Dennis pretended to be shocked and said, quote, good grief, how awful, unquote, in response to this, Chief Inspector Jay replied by saying, quote, don't mess about, where's the rest of the body, Unquote. The police thought that they were dealing with someone who had killed one person, but it did not take long before the truth came out and that they, they realised that they were actually dealing with a serial killer. Dennis Nielsen was arrested on suspicion of murder and taken to the local police station to make a statement. He would admit killing 15 or 16 men since 1978. A lot of evidence was discovered in the flat that Nielsen had lived in. Torsos, a skull and many bones were found. Dennis was taken to his previous address as well at Malrose Avenue where he pointed out areas where he had burned bodies on the bonfire. Investigators would find over a thousand fragments of bone from the garden at Nielsen's previous address and many fragments were charred by fire. Dennis Nielsen was asked why he had killed these people and he replied by saying quote, I'm hoping you will tell me that unquote. He did however claim that he had not set out to murder anybody and that the decision to kill was only made moments before he actually acted. He admitted that he would bathe the bodies and then dress them in socks and underpants and that he would talk to the dead bodies as well. He also admitted carrying out necrophilia on some of his victims. He also stated that all of the personal belongings left by the victims were destroyed, but not because of anyone identifying them, but so that the past identities did not matter now, that they were his props and belonged to him, so they did not need their property any longer. Dennis Nielsen was asked if he had any regrets for what he had done to the victims, but he replied, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. Unquote. On the 11th of February of 1983, Dennis Nielsen was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair, and he was then transferred to Brixton Prison and was held on remand until his trial. According to Dennis Nielsen, he felt resignation and relief after being arrested. Nielsen's trial began at the Old Bailey in London on the 24th of October of 1983. The judge was Mr Justice Croom Johnson. Dennis Nielsen had been charged overall with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. Despite confessing in great detail to the the police, Dennis Nielsen entered a plea of not guilty on all of the charges. The defence wanted to try and prove diminished responsibility on behalf of their client. They wanted him to be charged with manslaughter instead of murder. Luckily enough for the prosecution, there was enough evidence available to pursue the count of murder and attempted murder. The first witness was a man called Douglas Stewart, who claimed that in November of 1980, Dennis Nielsen had tried to strangle him, but Douglas was able to fight back and eventually overpower Dennis Nielsen. It is claimed that Nielsen wanted to then make out that he was the one being attacked and started shouting out that, oh, take my money, in the hope that other tenants in the building would think that he was being attacked instead of the other way round. Douglas did inform the police, who did speak to Nielsen about the incident, but they dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel instead of an attempted murder attack. The court would also hear from another two victims who claimed that they had been attacked by Dennis Nielsen and survived. Paul Nobbs highlighted Nielsen's self-control and also his ability to stop himself from going on with an attack of strangulation. He had apparently survived an attack by Dennis Nielsen, but there had been a lot of alcohol involved, so some people were a little sceptical about his evidence. Also, he was a student at university which was very different from his usual victims. Carl Stotter was the next witness up. He was the young man who had been brought back to life by Nielsen. Detective Chief Inspector Jay would also take the stand and and he highlighted the accused man's confessions and the calm matter-of-fact way that he had confessed to all of the crimes. He also pointed out that it was Dennis who had provided much of the information They initially thought that they were only dealing with one victim. Also, Nielsen had actually helped the police to find evidence in the garden. Two court psychiatrists would also testify on behalf of the defence. Dr James McKeith testified as to how, Through a lack of emotional development, Nielsen found it difficult to express any emotion other than anger. He also stated that Nielsen tended to treat others as just components of his fantasies. He would also bring the court's attention to Nielsen's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal. The other psychiatrist for the defence was Dr Patrick Galway. He diagnosed Nielsen with a borderline personality disorder. He concluded that Dennis Nielsen would often act on impulse and in a violent manner. Dr Galway did however agree that Nielsen was intellectually aware of his actions and was able to make decisions. However he stated that due to Nielsen's personality disorder he would not appreciate the criminal nature of his actions. On the 31st of October it was the turn of Dr Paul Bowden who would testify for the prosecution. Dr Bowden had interviewed and met with Dennis Nielsen on 16 separate occasions and had racked up 14 hours in total of interview time. Dr Bowden concluded at the trial that he found Dennis Nielsen to be a manipulative man who had been able to form relationships but had forced himself to objectify other people. He also stated that he found that Dennis Nielsen did not suffer from any disorder of the mind. The jury retired to consider their verdict on the 3rd of November of 1983. The following day, they returned with a majority verdict of guilty on all six of the murder charges and a unanimous guilty verdict of guilty in relation to one of the attempted murder charges, the one of Paul Nobbs. Dennis Nielsen was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 25 years. This sentence was upgraded to a whole life tariff by a future Home Secretary years later. There would be many books written about Dennis Nielsen, including one by Brian Masters called "Killing for Company." He would also go on to write about a book about the American serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who, in my opinion, had some similarities with Dennis Nielsen. There was also a documentary made for British TV on Dennis Nielsen, where a journalist interviewed him, but this has since been banned in the UK. Dennis Nielsen started his prison sentence in Wormwood Scrubs, which is in London. Dennis Nielsen accepted his fate and did not appeal his sentence at all. He was later transferred to Parkhurst Prison for a short time before being moved to Wakefield Prison. He has been attacked and threatened by other inmates on many occasions. Eventually, he was moved to a vulnerable prisoner unit at Full Sutton Prison because of concerns for his safety. When he was handed his whole life tariff by the Home Secretary Michael Howard in 1994. Dennis Nielsen apparently accepted it. He was transferred back to full Sutton prison sometime later. He died on the 12th of May of 2018. He had died in agony from a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm which although was repaired in hospital he suffered a blood clot as a complication from the surgery Dennis Nielsen was such a horrible serial killer who, despite knowing what could happen, would invite strangers back to his flat so that he could do what he wanted to them. He knew it was wrong and he destroyed a lot of evidence, but luckily there was enough evidence to convict him. He was said to have been close to his grandfather, enjoyed seeing his dead body, and stated that he felt a sense of calm about death when that happened when he was younger. I find it astonishing that he was able to carry about his normal routines during his killing years. Although he apparently did phone in sick a few times and the dates often linked up with the times he had murdered someone or the times that he had allegedly disposed of the bodies of any of his victims, he was a heavy drinker and he had lived a fairly solitary existence throughout much of his adult life anyway especially after his relationship with David broke down. He also seemed to be a selfish man who would put his needs before anyone else's. It is strange to think that someone can seemingly carry on living and working in relatively normal life at the same time as routinely going out looking for men to kill. This His downfall was not having access to a garden after moving and deciding to flush the remains of his victims down the toilet what a disgusting man he was thankfully he was caught and put away and and he did die in prison which wasn't that surprising really i also find it quite amazing how somebody could live amongst all those bodies with all the insects and the rotting flesh and everything and just knowing that there was you know at times two or three bodies under the floorboards it just doesn't bear thinking about and i feel so sorry for the poor men and and the young boys that died at his hands and they they didn't do anything to deserve it they just trusted him accepted drinks or food or whatever and just or maybe just wanted somewhere to stay because they had nothing really going on and it's just really sad that they that they made the wrong decision unfortunately and in most cases it it cost them their lives Credits for this episode go to Wikipedia, The World's Most Evil Murderers by Colin and Damon Wilson, which is a book.